Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Daniel chapter 1 is where we are this morning. We are beginning a, a journey through the Old Testament prophet Daniel. If you are visiting with us, or maybe you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to use one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the rack in front of you, every other chair or so, there's a Bible there. If you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, Daniel's a bit difficult to find in the Old Testament. Um, You can find Daniel on one of those page numbers in the Bible that you have in front of you, same version of the Bible, just different printings of it, so that's why there's two page numbers. And you're welcome to keep that Bible if you don't own a Bible. Please keep that as our gift to you. We'd love for you to read it, come back, find a good church to hear about Jesus, maybe this one, Lord willing, and uh, let God speak to you through his holy word. Now, why Daniel? If you are newer here, if you've been around for a while, and maybe this is just a refresher to you, our practice at this church is to spend the vast majority of our time working through books of the Bible, just kind of sequentially moving through a book of the Bible, because we think that God wrote the Bible And we think that the Holy Spirit is wiser than we are, uh, obviously, and we should just hear him out. And so we work our way through the Bible. We call that expositional preaching or teaching. And what we mean by that is we're wanting to expose ourselves to the Word of God and all of its message. And by working through books of the Bible, it helps us avoid skipping difficult places of the Bible, it also helps you be protected from my hobby horses as the main preacher here. And believe me, friends, I have some hobby horses. Amen? Amen. All right? But it protects us from that because God has written his word for us. Now, why Daniel? Daniel is an Old Testament prophet that uh, may be a bit of a scary book for some of us. It's, a, it's in a lot of ways, a complex book. It's 12 chapters, And you can kind of divide Daniel up this way. The first six chapters of Daniel are basically the narrative, the story of Daniel and his uh, friends and some Jewish exiles as they're carried away into captivity uh, from the Holy Land, Canaan land, into Babylon. We're going to talk a little bit about, about that history more in just a moment. That's the first six chapters. It's basically a story. And then chapters 7 through 12, the second half of the book, are a lot of visions and prophetic apocalyptic visions that Daniel has of the future. Now, here's the deal. Here are two extremes, two ditches that we want to avoid falling into as we work through Daniel. One, we want to avoid making Daniel the hero of the story. In fact, I think some people unwittingly view Daniel that way. Maybe you've heard sermons along the lines of, dare to be a Daniel, be like Daniel. And although there's some truth in that, when we focus too much on Daniel and his courage in the face of a hostile kingdom that he was captive of, we can lose Christ. We can lose the gospel. It's not a morality tale about how we are to be more like somebody. It ultimately, as Jesus says in the New Testament, the whole Old Testament is meant to point us towards him. So we're going to need to do some work to avoid moralism and do-goodism and just be like Daniel. Ultimately, we want, to be, we want to put our hope and trust in Christ, who is a true and better Daniel. And then the second ditch that we need to avoid falling into 
is I know some of you are really into end times charts and graphs and timing and all that kind of things. And when we get into the second part of Daniel, uh, our our temptation is going to be to make specific pronouncements about what some of these visions are saying about the timing of end times. Well, you will be disappointed when we get to those chapters if that is your your inclination because we're not going to get into those weeds. In fact, we're going to take some large chunks of the end of Daniel and kind of handle them all in one sermon. And we don't want to lose the greater point that God is in complete control of the future. And as we as people, we've referenced it in our prayers. Paul talked about it in, in between a few songs. It is we are people that are really in a time where we feel like the ground is shifting underneath our very feet. The culture that maybe some of us grew up in seems to be changing more rapidly than we ever thought possible. The message of Daniel is meant to lift our eyes to see that God is sovereign and in complete control. And we are people that ultimately were not made to be at home here in this land, in this earth. In fact, the world that we live in is a world that we live in exile, and this is not our true home. And in fact, the America that we grew up in, whenever that was, in the 50s or 60s, or whatever we hearken back to as the good old days, weren't the good old days. We are living in exile. And ultimately, God is superintending human history for the good of his people and for the renown of his name. And so with that, we're going to work our way through Daniel chapter 1 stop along the way, make some comments, and then at the end we're going to look at three truths for living as exiles. And that's the picture I want you to have in your mind, that Daniel is a kind of guide for exiles that are in captivity, living in a foreign land, and how they are to be faithful as they live in exile. And ultimately I want us to make the connection that although certainly times are different, situations are different, but we too, as God's people, are living in exile. So with that, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, and we'll start reading in Daniel chapter 1. Lord, um, I need your help to preach. I, I, I need your help. I, I come limping to this pulpit today. Um, well aware of my own inadequacy. And so, Lord, would you help me? And, Lord, my dear friends in this room this morning need your help to listen. So would you do what only you can do? Would you, would you show us the beauty of your sovereign grace as we work through this book over the next eight to nine weeks? Would you put steel in the spines of believers in this room so that we can endure and shine the glory of the gospel in our day and time? Would you convict us? Would you use this book to warn us, to rebuke us? And for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus, Lord, would you show them that ultimately their only hope is not in them resolving to do better, but in your miraculous provision of your Son on the cross to bear your wrath. Our our greatest 
need is not to survive a hostile earthly kingdom, but our greatest need is to be reconciled to a holy God who all of us have rebelled against. And so if there are unbelievers in this room today and in the weeks to come, Lord, would you draw them to faith in Jesus who alone can shield them from your justice and who alone can reconcile them to you and make them part of your family. Lord, I pray that you do these things for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people and for the salvation of all those that you have set your love on in eternity past. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the, year, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Let's stop there. The first thing that I, I want you to notice is three very important words at the beginning of verse 2 that sets the stage, really, for the whole book of Daniel. And it's the words there, the Lord gave. So right away, the writer, Daniel, is setting us up for this, this picture that God is in complete control. So before we can dive into this, we need to understand the setting of what is, hap- is happening here in this opening chapter of Daniel. So, if you remember, just by way of review, as we've worked through the Old Testament on several occasions over the years, that God created, of course, He created the world and everything in it, and He created Adam and Eve as His stewards of all creation, and Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against a good and gracious and holy and sufficient God. And because God is holy and righteous, and because sin and rebellion cannot reside with God, God excommunicates. He separates Adam and Eve from his presence in the garden in Genesis 3. But immediately after he uh, separates them from his presence, he begins his plan of redemption. And he then a few chapters later calls one man named Abram who later becomes Abraham. And he says to this one man, Abraham, through you, I will make a nation. And I am going to bless this nation so that through this nation, I will bless all the peoples of the earth. And then the rest of the Old Testament becomes this story of God's dealing with his people, the nation of Israel, not merely for their sake, but for his glory, so that through this nation, he would reconcile a lost world to himself, for all those that would trust in his mercy and grace. And we know that this nation of Israel becomes in seed form a picture of his Messiah, this son that will come through this nation, Jesus, who ultimately will be God in the flesh, who will lay down his life on the cross and bear the wrath of God so that all those who would trust in him can be reconciled to him. So this nation begins to form in the early parts of the Old Testament in Genesis and on through the rest of the Bible. And this nation grows and God promises them a land and they 
are in captivity in Egypt in the first part of the second book of the Bible in Exodus. And God miraculously rescues them out of Egypt and they wander through the desert and He miraculously leads them into the promised land. And they are in the land where God has called them to be and they are finally a nation. But they still continue to rebel against God and God gives them kings. They ask for a king and God gives them kings and the first king is a terrible king. His name is Saul. The second king, David, is a, a, a wonderful king, but a flawed king. And all of this is pointing this to the fact that really we need a true and better leader. We need a true and better king, Jesus, the true king who will come. All of this is anticipating Christ. Well, David is a wonderful king, but he's flawed in many ways. So we ultimately realize that no man can be our final hope. David has a son named Solomon. He has his own issues. Then Solomon has a son And his name is Rehoboam, and Rehoboam is not a good king. And the kingdom splits. God's people are split into the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah. And both of these split kingdoms, the northern tribes and the southern tribes, are continuing to be rebellious against God. Even though God has been good to them and miraculously provided from them, rescuing them from Egyptian captivity, causing bread and birds to fall out of heaven to feed them, they continue to rebel against him. And during this time of their rebellion, while these kings are in control of this split kingdom, God warns them. He warns them and said, If you continue to rebel against me, I will surely pour out my wrath on you and I will do it by bringing a foreign enemy to come and conquer you. So just get a picture of that. The God who has already rescued them from one foreign captor, Egypt, promises them that if they continue to be rebellious, he will bring another enemy to come and capture them. In fact, as part of his law, God promises them in Leviticus chapter 26 that if they do not obey him, specifically if they break his law, they break his covenant, that he will bring an enemy and he will carry them off to captivity and destruction. And then we see in 2 Kings chapter 20, just before this time of Daniel, that there is this king named Hezekiah. And he is mostly a good king. He's one of the few good kings in the history of of Judah, the southern kingdoms. But God, a couple chapters before, in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19, miraculously rescues God's people from this foreign army called the Assyrians. Right? They're starting to threaten God's people. And God miraculously works on behalf of Hezekiah. And he sends an angel to kill 185,000 Assyrians in one night. That's a good battle plan. For all you army guys here, paragraph 3, execution. Write that in when you're writing your op board. Send an angel to kill 185,000 of the enemy. That would be nice, wouldn't it? That we can put in the miracle category. That's what God does, right? He miraculously protects his people from this foreign army that is threatening them. But just one chapter later, in 2 Kings chapter 20, just to summarize it, I won't read it to you, Hezekiah is feeling threatened again by the Assyrians, who just a 
few chapters before, God slayed 185,000 of them. And so he starts to do political maneuvering with the Babylonians. And so he invites these Babylonian, which is another uh, group of people, he invites them to come and sort of look at all his treasury and shows them all that he has because he's trying to impress them. He's like making a treaty. And God speaks to Hezekiah through a prophet and he says, and I'm summarizing here, because you are trusting in your own political maneuvering, I am going to take these very people that you are trying to make an alliance with and they are going to be the ones that punish you and destroy you and carry you off to destruction. And so what God is saying is that be faithful. I will protect you. Nothing can replace trust in the Lord. But yet God's people continue to rebel. And so in around 586 B.C. or so, it happens. Babylon, this nation that just a little while before Hezekiah has invited to be their, their allies to protect them from this other neighbor, turns on them, just as God had said would happen. And this leader, Nebuchadnezzar, carries off Israel to captivity and carries them to Babylon. And all of this, right there, those three words, the Lord gave, God told them it would happen, warned them that if they were rebellious, and said that if you do this, this will happen. And all of this is happening under the sovereign hand of God. The Lord gave. Friends, before we even read the rest of the book of Daniel, we need to understand that God is sovereign over the affairs of nations and individuals. So God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans is just another word for the Babylonians. They were part of the Babylonian empire. So as we work through this, when you see the word Chaldeans, realize that it is the Babylonians. To teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, let's stop there, and let's just take this in and see what's happening. Notice the subtle enculturation of these Jewish teenagers. Daniel and his friends were probably in their mid to early teens at this time, and they're hand-picked as sharp young guys, and they're siphoned off, and they're now being indoctrinated into the culture of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. And notice there, they start by, by 
giving them new names. So their Hebrew names, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. Azariah, the Lord is a helper. They change those names and give them Babylonian names. And each one of those Babylonian names invoked the help of a Babylonian false god. And so do you see they're, they're starting to work at their sense of identity and who they are. And notice there that it's just a slow little thing. In fact, they're, hey, we're going to teach you. We're going to send you to our best universities and, and indoctrinate you. And it's going to help you and you're going to get ahead. And we see this slow and steady indoctrination. Friends, I don't think we have to work very hard to think about just our culture and how that happens to us. Think about just in the past 10 years, just the seismic shifts in cultural opinion that have happened in our culture. You just think about our, our culture's stand on traditional marriage. E- even now, we see this just really, quite frankly, just idiotic uh, debate going on in retail stores about transgender bathrooms. And it just makes us scratch our head, like, how is this even a discussion? We see in our TV culture, we see that homosexuality, which was looked upon as outside of God's plan for human sexuality, now we see that virtually every primetime show, in some way subtly, seeks to legitimize homosexual behavior. And let's not just stop at homosexual behavior, because I'm going to say something about it in a moment. It seeks to legitimize just premarital heterosexual activity as the absolute norm. And you see how, friends, if we think that this does not have an influence on us, we are, well, we are ignorant at best, and we are ridiculously foolish at worst. Now, friends, I, I am... Listen to me here, because every time I mention particular sin categories, I want to come back and say a few things alongside of it. I want to say that I don't think that the greatest issue going on in our culture right now is that we have capitulated on the issue of homosexuality. Let me just say this about that particular uh, sin, is that I believe that uh, if that the church has failed the culture in many ways, to have a biblical perspective of what human sexuality is as we sort of ignore heterosexual sin and hold up one particular aspect of sexual sin, homosexuality. We've undercut our ability to advocate for a biblical view of, homosexu- of sexuality, and it is this. This is a biblical view of sexuality, that the only legitimate expression of human sexuality or intimacy is between one man and one woman in marriage. And everything else, whether it is same-sex attraction or whether it is heterosexual sex outside of marriage or before marriage, is outside of God's law and is a sin and rebellion against God. And if a person gives themselves over to that in direct rebellion against God and they do not turn from that sin, they will find themselves outside of Christ on that judgment day. Friends, that is true. That doesn't mean that this room isn't full of a bunch of people that are wrestling with heterosexual sin and taking God's side against their sin and fighting it. And it also doesn't mean that a person can't truly be struggling with same-sex attraction but truly be a Christian. 
And they are taking God's side against their desire. That's what it means to be a Christian. To take God's side, which is better by far, as Paul led us in that song. Jesus is better. God's holiness is better than the satisfaction of any deviant desire. Do you see that? But do you see how the church has been sort of caught sleeping and all of a sudden now we find ourselves in the middle of a cultural seismic shift where things seem to be changing overnight and I don't think they've really changed overnight. I think just that our laziness and our hypocrisy is finally being revealed and here we are. The emperor has no clothes and here we are. And it starts subtle, and then it escalates. Wouldn't it be better if everything just kind of declared itself right off the bat? I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress with my two younger children, and one of our children, uh, who's not a boy, so that she is rather literal. And if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress you know that it's basically an allegory of the Christian life and, and everybody is named by kind of who they are. So the main character, is, it's just a story of the Christian life and the main character's name is Christian, right? And he deals with all these people. There's this man named Evangelist who comes to evangelize him, right? And he has this friend named Pliable who's pliable and this friend named Obstinate who's obstinate. And along the way, he encounters this man named Mr. Worldly Wise Man who is trying to lead him into worldly wisdom. And my daughter, as we're reading this, she's going, what's his problem? Why is he, the guy is named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Why would you follow him? (laughs) He's so dumb. Is Christian really that dumb? And I'm like, well, sweetheart, it, it's, a, it's an allegory. It's, it's meaning to picture these things. You've you got to work with it a little bit here. I know, Dad, but why would you follow somebody that's called Mr. Worldly Wisdom? I, I know. <laughs> Wouldn't it be kind of neat if everything declared itself? But that's not the way it works. I mean, come on, just have, a, just have some meat. Just drink some of this wine. It'll be okay. Come on. Let's continue verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord the King who has assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths which, who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So you see what's going on here? This guy who's in charge of us saying, wait a minute now. If you just have vegetables, this isn't going to work for me. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So he listened 
so he, and at the, verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And let's just pause here real quickly and say, what was it with the king's food? Um, much has been written about this, and I don't think there's really any definite answer. We're not sure. Some people think, well, was it kosher? Was it, uh, was it uh, against Jewish dietary laws? Well, maybe, but later on, and we, we see in Daniel, specifically in Daniel chapter 10, where it seems like Daniel is eating the food and the delicacies of the king and doesn't seem to be sinning at that moment. Maybe it was because this food was offered to idols. Who knows? But for some reason, Daniel felt the Lord was calling him to take a stand. Maybe it was just a kind of immediate stand. I need to declare who I am in the context of this foreign culture that is conquering my people and carrying us away. Regardless, let's just take in the fact that Daniel's faithfulness required risk. Risk for this, for his own head. Risk for this guy that he had to to influence, to let him carry through with his plan. Faithfulness requires risk. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now that's significant. Look back again to verse 19. It says, Therefore they stood before the king. And then in verse 21, as if to signal that there's going to be kings that come and go, it says that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So this is... King Nebuchadnezzar. And then we're going to read in a couple chapters about a king named Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son or grandson. And then we're going to read about another king that that Daniel served before, Darius. And then at the end of the book, we're going to read about Cyrus. And so it's like this, this setup that God is giving us here at the end of Daniel. He's saying, kings are going to come and go, but God's faithful people will be preserved through these worldly kingdoms. And that standing before the king is pointing us towards something far more important than standing before a worldly king, but ultimately standing before God the king, which we'll touch on in just a moment. So with that, three truths as we end. Three truths for living as exiles in the land. First truth, and this is a truth that you're going to hear probably multiple times through the book of Daniel. But it's okay for things to be repeated. In fact, Paul writes in Philippians, it's not tedious of me to repeat these things to you, right? I mean, some, I mean, ESPN has a channel that will show old football games, right? ESPN Classic, right? This is a classic. This is a bedrock truth of the Christian life. And it is this, that God is in complete control. Right? Just, it tips us off at the beginning. And the Lord gave. God is in complete control of human history. Listen to this confession of faith 
from the Reformation, the English Reformation, and it's called the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which drew heavily from another wonderful creed and confession of faith in the history of the church, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Listen to what these English Puritans put together as a confession of God's utter control over all things in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. It says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge. Infallible meaning cannot err, without error, unable to err, unto his infallible foreknowledge. And the free and immutable, meaning unchangeable, counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Those English Puritans got it right, but let's not believe it because a bunch of English Puritans got together for a writing of a confession of faith. Let's believe it because of the Bible that they were standing on figuratively as they wrote that confession of faith. Let's believe it because what Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 11, listen to this, in him we, meaning those who are trusting in Christ, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It doesn't get much clearer than that. That means that God has worked the rising up of the nation of Israel according to the counsel of his will. God has worked the famine in the land that sent them into Egypt that ultimately landed them in captivity according to the counsel of his will. God raised up an arrogant despot named Pharaoh to oppose Moses according to the counsel of his will. God raised up and rescued his people from Pharaoh's captivity according to the counsel of his will. God caused his people to wander in the desert, which was an 11-day journey back to the promised land, but it took them 40 years according to the counsel of his will. God allowed 40 kings to be raised up in Israel, most of which would be bad according to the counsel of his will. God allowed, caused, ordained Hezekiah to be mostly a good king, but then be an arrogant king who wanted to make an alliance with the Babylonians and show off his treasury according to the counsel of his will. God allowed the Babylonians in one generation later to come and do the very thing that he warned Hezekiah, which would happen to him, to carry off his people into captivity according to the counsel of his will, right? God preordained, caused, according to the counsel of his will, America to be a nation as it is in the 1700s. God ordained according to the counsel of his will for America to be a great force for the expansion of Christianity across the world according to the counsel of his will. God put 
Reagan in office according to the counsel of his will. God put Obama in office according to the counsel of his will. And God will put whoever the next president is in the White House according to the counsel of his will. God put every Supreme Court justice in their seat, gives them breath, and takes it away according to the counsel of his will. God causes every argument that's uttered in the Supreme Court that causes our culture to either rise or fall in some mysterious way according to the counsel of his will. God is behind, above, overworking in all things in mysterious ways according to the counsel of his will. And that, no weak sauce, no, no, either give it or don't. That, friends, I say it often, that should put steel in our spines. That should make us want to memorize Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give him all things? Oh my gosh, Target's opening up their bathrooms. What are we going to do? Read Daniel and realize that it was much worse. And God has worked all things, is working all things, will work all things according to the counsel of his will. Listen to this. And friends, because I realize that brings up all sorts of valid questions. Why would God allow this? What are God's purposes and all this? That is often, most of the time, hidden from us. But listen to what he says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When one individual man named Job questions God about why he brings certain things to pass, listen to a few sentences of how he replies to Job. He listens to Job and his friends for about 30-something chapters. And then in chapter 38, God says, all right, I've had enough of this business. I'll skip around here. We won't have it on the screen. Just take this in. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? He goes on and he says, Who has the reign of father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of the heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion, the constellations in the heavens? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in the season or can you guide the bear with his children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish your rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? And the Lord said to Job in chapter 40, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then in verse 3 of chapter 40, then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. 
I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And one of the reasons why we, as Americans, have trouble dealing with God's sovereignty in our strain and stress and sorrow and calamity is because we have defined life as these 80 or 90 years. And when you shrink the life that God calls us to into these 80 or 90 years, we lose the biblical perspective of what life everlasting is. God is in complete control. Second truth for living as exiles, God's people are called to be faithful. This world is not a neutral place. I think one thing that is good in all of what's going on as the ground shifts underneath us is that this is actually God's kindness to us because he is purifying and clarifying what it truly means to be his people. Nominal Christianity, meaning being a Christian in name only, is going extinct. And that is a good thing. For maybe some Christians that harken back to a time when things seemed to be better in our culture, I want you to realize, dear ones, that they weren't good. They weren't good. The world has always been Babylon, right? We harken back to the 50s and 60s when America was a moral nation, remember? Well, I don't. Actually, I wasn't born then. But, but think about that. Who is it a moral nation for? For white middle-class evangelicals, maybe. But it was a false bubble, Was it good for black people in the South who were being segregated and crosses were being burned in their lawns? No, it was a wicked place. The world has been wicked. And God is telling his people that this world is not their home and he is calling us to be faithful in the midst of it. This world is not our home. And just as sure as he is in complete control, he has purposes for us in this world. Listen to what Jesus prays for his disciples in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 14. This is his high priestly prayer, and he says, I have given them your word. He's praying to the Father. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples that he was with at that moment, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is presupposing there in that prayer that the world is evil and that he knows it and that God is in complete control of it 
and that God has his people in this evil world so that through the way they remain faithful to him, he might call all of his people to himself and bring people to faith in Jesus. This is part of God's plan for us in exile. It did not sneak up on God. And God gives us means to help us to stay faithful. One of the means, just a short little rabbit trail here, one of the means that he gives us is is the community of faith church. Robert mentioned it earlier. He talked about coming and being a member of the church. Now, we don't say that because we just want to add to our roles, right? We're We're not just trying to grow. We're trying to clarify what it truly means to be a Christian in a hostile world. And one of the benefits of actually becoming a member of the church is that you hear clearly what we believe, and then you have to meet with a pastor or elder of the church, and you have to tell us what you believe, what you believe the true gospel to be and how you became a Christian. And you may, consider this, friend, you may be self-deceived in that. And if you have to sit before somebody in a very comfortable and very, very gracious environment, you, you may not truly be believing what the Bible says about what it means to be right with God. Maybe you think that if you just try harder, that God will sort of meet you halfway and you'll be okay. Maybe you think that if you just kind of decide to do a little bit better and come to church and clean up and stop clicking that website and stop doing this and that and do this, then may, you know, if you give a little bit to the church, you'll be okay. Friends, that's not what makes you right with God. And, and where, where can you find out whether or not what you are believing is true? I think God has given us the local church to be a kind of soil by which we grow and by which we clarify what the Bible actually says so that we can be protected because we are all vulnerable to be indoctrinated into the false gospels of this world. And God calls his people to be faithful. Third and finally, third truth for living is in exile. God preserves his people. Friends, Daniel is not a story about how God will act for us merely here and now if we are to be faithful. If we read from this, that if we will just merely obey God like Daniel did, dare to be a Daniel, then we will have favor in this world. You know why I know that? because I think it runs counter to everything that the Bible says about the gospel, but because in Hebrews chapter 11, we won't take the time to read this, in Hebrews chapter 11, where the writer of Hebrews is talking about the great uh, pictures of faith in the Old Testament, he said there are some, like Daniel and his friends, who stopped the mouths of lions, that we'll read about in Daniel chapter 6, and walked through the fire, like we'll read about in Daniel chapter 3. So these great people that God rescued. But then he says there are some that because of their faith, were sawn in two. So in other words, taking a stand for God does not always end well here and now in this life. If we take away from this that God is somehow obligated to bless us if we vote the right way, watch Fox News, and just play Mr. Wilson, and get, get off my lawn, liberals. Right? If, if, if we think that is what God is obligated to act on. We are painfully wrong. We're believing a false gospel. 
God preserves his people for eternity against the greater judgment than anything that Babylon or America or the Supreme Court could issue, and that is his judgment. And God preserves his people. This is also not a story about pragmatic self-help or a healthy diet, right? And I'm not dogging you if you do this Daniel diet every year. Knock yourself out. But don't lose the fact that just because you're taking some pill and detoxing and eating asparagus for January, that somehow things are going to go better for you. That's not the point of Daniel. It's not pragmatic. If you will do this, then God will do this. It is a miracle for you to be fatter and stronger and healthier if you're eating Brussels sprouts while everybody else is eating steak. Friends, that's not pragmatism. That's not giving us a picture of what a healthy diet is. That's a miracle. That's the point. That God miraculously intervenes and provides grace for his people. Now friends, where are we going now? Where are we going with this? You know where we're going to land this plane. What is that a picture of, right? That's a picture of the ultimate provision that we need as we stand before the king, which is Christ. We need a miracle to stand before the king. Did you notice at the end of chapter one, and they stood before the king, and then later on a couple verses it said, and there's gonna be a bunch of kings, and they're gonna come and go. It's lifting our eyes to see that we are all gonna stand before a true and great king one day, and he is God our judge, and we need a miracle to stand before that king. We need him to preserve us, and he has done that. He has made a way for us through the cross. Listen to this, and we end with this. First John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It doesn't mean that everybody gets saved. It means that not only the Christians that John was writing to, that he knew were already Christians, but also for all those, all types of people, Jews, Gentiles, all types of people, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus is sufficient for them. He is the provision for their right standing before the ultimate king. And as we live in exile, as we live in our modern day Babylon, friends, we are all prone to be deceived that what we need is a president that would align with us, that what we need is a better diet to make us healthier, that what we need is a few tips to help us navigate through life, that what we need is this, that, or the other. Now, friends, all those can be wonderful graces of God. Let's vote. Let's eat right. Let's, well, I mean, have a steak every now and again, but let's, let's do all these things. But let's not let our modern Babylon lull us to sleep to think that what we ultimately need 
is here and now, these 80 or 90 years. What we ultimately need is not to stand before the kings of Babylon or America, but we ultimately will stand before the one true king. And on that day, we need to be found faithful. And what does it mean to be found faithful before the true king? It means we need a miraculous provision. And he's provided that for us in Christ. And if we are in Christ, kings will come and go. Supreme courts will issue decisions. Retail stores will do stupid things. Unqualified people will be elected to president. Wicked things will be on TV. Our own hearts will be torn by our own remaining indwelling sin. But on that day, we, the world will be divided into two groups of people. Those who are standing before the true king on their own accord, or those who are standing before the true king because of the miraculous provision of his son Jesus, who is God himself in the flesh, who became a man, lived a perfect life, where we all rebelled, he obeyed, then he laid down his perfect sacrificial life on the cross to absorb God's wrath, remove it, extinguish it, satisfy it, take it away and give us his righteousness so that all who trust in him will stand before the king safe. Because God, as Kwame read at the beginning, is our refuge. (laughs) And he is our help. Dear Christian friend, put your hope in that king. Dear friend that's come into this room unbelieving, that king is your only hope. You must put your hope in Him. Does that mean you must recite a prayer or fill out a card? Those things can be helpful. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm asking you to look up and right now breathe the very breath that God is giving you, the faith that He is, I believe, generating in you by His sovereign grace, not because of anything in you, and put it in Christ and say, Jesus, I realize I will stand before the King someday and I need you. My hope is in what you have done, not what I have done. That is what you must do even now. Do it. Do it. Do not leave this room today before you do that. In just a moment, the team is going to come. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to sing a few songs. If you are praying that prayer, if you realize that you need provision for your soul before the true king, do not leave this room. Come down. Pray with a pastor. Pray with somebody that you know to be a Christian and talk about what it means to be provided for before the king through his son Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are exiles. And we are often lulled to sleep. This world, our culture, wants to change our identity and give us names that identify with the false gods of our age. But Lord, let us remember that for those of us that are trusting in you, our true identity 
is one that only you can give. May we not find our comfort in being Americans or Southerners or military or white or black or middle class or educated or athletic or savvy or whatever. May we find our identity only in the fact that we are servants of the true King. And may we be humbled by the fact that we are your servants, your people, part of your kingdom, only because of your miraculous provision of your son, Jesus. And may that put steel in our spines. And may we realize that you leave us here for a purpose. And Lord, may you call people that are in this room who came in that were not part of your kingdom. Would you call them? Would you clarify for them that their greatest need is not to do better or to cope, but their greatest need is that they will stand before you someday. If they will trust in what your son has done miraculously through his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection, they will be provided for on that day. Lord, do this for the glory of your name and for our rest. In Jesus' name I pray.